0: Before you listen to this podcast, you can subscribe to The Critic magazine with the current offer of five issues for just £10. Head to our website, www.thecritic.co.uk, to subscribe today. Hello, and welcome back to The Critic Narrated, where we bring you a selection of articles from our print issues read aloud by their authors. In this episode, David Starkey says feminists like Stock have made a belated rediscovery of biological reality in his column, Welcome Back to Reality, Feminists. While well, Boris Darling outlines the latest rivalry in F1 in Top Guns of the Track, and Claudia Savage Gore drags Woke Will back to therapy. So now, David Starkey with Welcome Back to Reality, Feminists.
1: Wake up to reality. Wokeness is not really an intellectual position at all. It is more a form of wish fulfilment. What is truth, said jesting Pilate, and would not stay for an answer. The opening sentence of Francis Bacon's celebrated essay of truth stands like a declaration of intent at a foundation moment of our culture. For asking the question, staying, waiting for the answer, and having the freedom to pursue it wherever it leads, and however uncomfortable the destination might be, is the key to the astonishing achievement of the Western tradition in the last four or five hundred years. The quest for truth has, however, been notable largely by its absence from the discourse of our universities in the last few decades. The fact was brought home to me by a breakfast time conversation at a house party last summer. My interlocutor was an agreeable young man recently down from Oxford. He was intelligent, highly musical and of good family and double-barrelled, though fallen somewhat on hard times. His grandmother, he explained, had never really forgiven his father for allowing him to be born in a house with a number which made his reaction when I said that I believed in truth and falsehood and that it was possible to establish which was which all the more surprising. It was as though I'd spoken in Sanskrit. The idea had never crossed his mind and nothing and no one in his long and expensive education had ever proposed such an outlandish doctrine. Everything, in other words, was relative, a matter of opinion or experience, or feeling, or some other form of comforting subjectivity. The truth, in contrast, was alien, cold in its remote objectivity, and to all intents and purposes, unknown and unknowable. I was reminded of all this by the latest skirmish in the culture wars, It is taking place in the University of Sussex at Brighton, where the feminist and lesbian philosopher Professor Kathleen Stock is fighting off a nasty campaign to force the university to dismiss her. Her crime is to have published a book with the title Material Girls. The obligatory tacky pop culture reference for what could be tackier than Madonna, who was recently exposed as 65-year-old bottom on American TV. Well, is, I suppose, obligatory these days. But the subtitle is serious enough. Why Reality Matters for Feminism. To those outside the university, such a statement will seem conventional to the point of banality. But to those inside academia it is radical, even revolutionary, and a veritable crossing of the Rubicon. But the earlier generation of feminists believed no such thing, and to sustain their belief they constructed an entire edifice of alternative language. The problem, of course, is that the biology of sex suggests that there are essential and ineradicable differences between men and women. This did not suit first-wave feminists at all. They wanted to prove that whatever men can do, women could do as well or better. Their solution was to dematerialize masculinity and femininity. These were not, feminists declared, a product of intrinsic sexual difference, now denounced as biological determinism, but mere social conditioning. And whereas sex couldn't be changed, social conditioning could be. Feminism's final triumph was indeed more or less to abolish the word sex, or at least to correlate safely in pornography and biology. Instead, in any other context, we were taught to use the word gender. The word is borrowed from grammar, where, as anybody who has studied Latin or German will know, nouns or substantives belong to one of three genders, masculine, feminine, or neutral. That linguistic gender is arbitrarily assigned was a godsend to the feminist purpose. That there are three of them has turned out to be something of a Trojan horse. All was going swimmingly for feminists until the fashion for transsexuality appeared. This, as a moment's thought will show, depends for its plausibility on the idea of gender. If social conditioning makes a man a man, or a woman a woman, then social conditioning can, just as easily, change the one into the other. Or indeed, into whatever combination of the two takes one's fancy. Hence the multiplying of preferred pronouns, also taken from grammar, of course, he, she, they, etc., etc. When confronted with another similarly extravagant doctrine, Bishop Barclay's rejection of matter, Dr. Johnson refuted it by kicking a stone. Feminists, like Professor Stock, have experienced a similar collision with hard facts as they contemplate the possibility of sharing a shower or a changing room with a self-proclaimed woman who happens, since his biology has not caught up with his, their gender, to have a beard, testicles, and a functioning penis. Faced with such an intolerable prospect, Professor Stock has, to misuse a biblical phrase, kicked against the pricks. Hence the schism in feminism and hence Professor Stock's belated rediscovery of reality. This was set out most clearly in her written evidence to a parliamentary committee in 2020. Three points stand out. That womanhood and manhood reflect biological sex, not gender or gender identity. That the claim that trans women are women is a fiction, not literally true, and that sexual attraction, being gay, being lesbian, is determined by same-sex attraction, not attraction to gender identity. To which the only possible response is to welcome Professor Stock back to the real world, to that place where, as I tried to persuade my young interlocutor, there is truth and falsehood, or, in Professor Stock's phrase, fact and fiction, and that it is possible to distinguish one from the other. But, once again, the apparent banality of such assertions conceals their academic radicalism, since they amount to the repudiation of the fundamental assumptions of two or three generations. These are the woke, the generations which, knowingly or not, are the disciples of Tony Blair's guru and that charlatan's charlatan, Professor Anthony Giddens. His book, The Social Construction of Reality, has shaped a whole world view in which the social construction of gender is a mere chapter. Giddens' message, shorn of its original obscurity and turgidity, is simple. Things are what you want them to be. This is solipsistic consumerism, draped in sociological jargon, which is both its strength and its weakness. It is psychologically strong, but intellectually weak. Indeed, wokeness is not really an intellectual position at all, more a form of wish fulfilment, or, somewhat to dignify it beyond its merits, a sort of pseudo-religion which is why it replicates so many of the forms of religion, the attachment to dogma, the absurd fetishization of correct language, people of color good, colored people bad, etc., the revival of heresy and the enthusiastic burning, otherwise known as cancellation, of heretics such as Professor Stock or indeed myself, the incantatory formulae trans women are women rather than Hail Mary, and above all the way in which wokeness, like religion, becomes part of the identity of the wookster, which to question challenges the very identity of the person in question, hence the passions, the demonstrations, the uninhibited violence of the language, and even real violence, all of which is very powerful. Just as organized religion was once very powerful, and the more so since, like organized religion, woke has captured so many institutions, from universities to great international companies. But the power of organized religion, great though it was, was brought down, partly by the 18th century mockery of Voltaire in France or David Hume in Britain, but much more so by the empirical attack of 19th century biblical criticism in Germany or Darwinian evolutionary biology in Britain, which is how the pseudo-religion of woke will be, must be brought down by the mockery of Andrew Doyle, by the brave reassertion of biological reality of Kathleen Stock, by the sober appeal to the evidence of reclaim history, and by the drip of, drip of hard, unyielding fact. It begins as a trickle, it turns into a torrent, and it will wash away this new Tower of Babel.
0: Next, Boris Darling reads his sports column, Top Guns of the Track.
2: Top Guns of the Track. Max Verstappen and Lewis Hamilton might not exactly hate each other, but their relationship is formal, verging on Chile. Few things elevate a sport like rivalry. Proper, personal, piquant rivalry. It's been a while since Formula One has had one, but it does now and with bells on. At the time of writing, with just over two-thirds of the 2021 season gone, Red Bull's Max Verstappen leads Lewis Hamilton and Mercedes by six points. A narrow margin, but even so, one which scarcely hints at the ferocity of their battle for the World Championship. Snapshot of a rivalry, race two, Imola. The two men dive for the first corner together, Verstappen holds his line and nerve better to force Hamilton wide. Verstappen wins. Hamilton a second. Hamilton professes not to be bothered. It's a marathon, not a sprint, he says, so I'm just always thinking the long game. I don't get too aggressive when I don't need to be. Snapshot of a rivalry. Race 10, Silverstone. Verstappen has won four of the last five races. In front of his home crowd, Hamilton's no longer in the mood to be pushed around. The two men collide. Verstappen spins off and out of the race. Hamilton goes on to win despite a time penalty for being at fault for the crash. Snapshot of a rivalry. Race 14, Monza. Two men, one chicane, no quarter. Verstappen's car half-mounts Hamilton's, with over the latters safety halo device, saving him from potentially serious injury. Both men crash out, with Verstappen this time blamed and handed a three-place grid penalty for the next race. There are several things which make this rivalry special. Social media has opened it up to the public in new ways, and Netflix's excellent Drive to Survive series shows that this is also a contest between the two teams, with Mercedes' Teutonic Reserve pitted against Red Bull's more guerrilla-style image. Hamilton is going for a record eighth title while Verstappen is still hunting his first. Mercedes have won every Drivers and Constructors championship since 2014, a period of hegemony almost twice as long as Red Bull's before that. Most importantly, there is a very stark contrast between the two men. Hamilton is thirty-six, thirteen years older than his rival, the ageing but canny stag banking on experience and wiles to see off the young buck who would be king, a trope which keeps dramatists and wildlife documentary makers alike in work. Hamilton and Verstappen might not exactly hate each other, but their personal relationship is formal verging on chilly, and they both have an increasing tendency to weaponize slights both real and imagined. Temperamentally, too, they are at either end of the scale. Hamilton drives with a mathematician's precision, astonishingly consistent and at times almost preternaturally free from error. Verstappen is Quicksilver, daring, the instinctive natural who now and then flies too close to the sun. Three and a half decades after Top Gun was released, Iceman and Maverick are back in a rather different sort of cockpit. In this contrast to stars above all, Hamilton and Verstappen are taking us back to perhaps the greatest Formula One rivalry of all, between Alain Prost, Nert and Senna. That one had complexities, which this one has yet to achieve, not least that it was at its height, but when Prost and Senna were driving for the same McLaren team in the late 1980s. But already there are more similarities between the rivalries than there are differences. That same mutual and yielding desire to win was seen twice in a row when Prost and Senna were going head-to-head for the championship in the final race of the season at Suzuka. Prost took Senna out in 1989, and Senna returned the favour the following year. But for this writer, at least, the abiding memory of Prost and Senna came at the Portuguese Grand Prix in 1988. Senna is leading when Prost comes out from the slip team and attracts down the long straight at Estoril. Prost is on the inside and Senna twitches right, crowding Prost towards the pit wall at 190 miles an hour. Both cars on that impossibly thin cusp between traction and flight. For the briefest moment, Prost takes evasive action before steering back towards his rival, daring him in return to seed ground or risk a crash. And it all happens in a split second, these are the insanely thin margins on which races are won and lost, on which careers are made and broken. As with Prost and Senna, Hamilton and Verstappen's rivalry elevates both men, spurring them on to ever higher standards. For Hamilton in particular, having someone right up in his face every time he goes out on track is a welcome change from years of more or less uninterrupted dominance. These men are racers, and racers want to race. Processions and easy wins are all well and good, but they can't hold a candle to the thrill of being pushed to the point where you have to dredge the depths of your soul to win. Senna was distraught after Prost retired because only then did he truly realise how much the rivalry had driven him on how much Prost had been the Hector to his Achilles now two more men have taken up that immortal cudgel and whether the flag that flies atop the podium when this season closes in December is British or Dutch it would have been a privilege to watch not just for everybody who loves motorsport but for everyone who loves the purity of sport
0: now, Anna Price narrates Claudia Savage-Gore's hashtag couple goal orientated. Hashtag couple goal orientated. Claudia Savage-Gore drags woke Will back to therapy. So I went to this divorce lawyer my friend Anouska recommended just to get a sense of my options. Anyway, after an initial consultation, during which we established that we don't have a prenup and Will hasn't had an affair and is just pathetic, She suggested we try couples counselling and come back to her after we've given that a shot. Seemed weirdly unmercenary for a solicitor, but then I got the bill for this frankly average advice. Let's just say it would have easily covered a year's Botox or a term's extracurricular activities for her thick kids. More on those in a sec. Obviously, Will and I had couples counselling before, but since I hadn't told him about the lawyer, he was baffled when I announced that we were going back. To be fair, the actual catalyst for the divorce lawyer has faded a little. Said catalyst was Will becoming unhealthily attached to a deeply annoying mother called Talitha from Lyra's school. Long story short, Will went to her for reiki, convinced that he had long COVID, even though Talitha was actually the source of his COVID, lol, following our staycation in the same village in Norfolk. Anyway, the whole Reiki thing turned out to be a non-starter because before Talitha gifted him with her healing vice, she insisted he open up to her about his father. I could have told her this was a beginner's error. I can see how she thought it might work. Will has become about 50% more woke since meeting Talitha and now talks a good talk about toxic masculinity. But you can get him to do all the lines breath you like. There's no way Will's going to actually slag off Field Marshal Savage gore. Speaking of Will's dad, we are at an impasse over funding. Basically, the pressure to enrol in every extracurricular club on offer has ramped up to insane levels since school returned to quasi-normality. Most of Hector's peers do three clubs every weeknight, plus extra sport on Saturdays and swimming on Sundays. Lyra's class is just as bad, except with 11 plus looming, half the clubs have been replaced by alpha tutors, charging £300 an hour. And even though Minnie's boarding, the school keeps asking me to pick stuff up from the enrichment menu to make sure she's never knowingly underoccupied. Anyway, we're borderline skint after the playroom into home cinema conversion, so I got Will to ask his dad to fund some of this enrichment shit. My parents already pay Hector's school fees, so it's tricky to go to them with the begging bowl. I assumed Will's dad would at least be up for bankrolling Hector's cricket, but his bloody mother got in there first, dismissing the kids' after-school schedules as bonkers. This is massively missing the point. Nobody cares whether their schedules are sane. For the record, they are bonkers. The point is, if our kids are only doing half as much as everyone else's in St John's Wood, they risk social pariahdom, which is doubly relevant with the return of birthday parties. When I made this point to Will, he went on a rant about how, pre-COVID, I used to spend every weekend moaning about the hell of birthday parties. I told him this should be the focus of our first therapy session, i.e. his pathological need to find and belittle inconsistencies in my pain. This did briefly shut him up, which is always a hashtag couple goal as far as I'm concerned. If you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, why not subscribe to have the magazine delivered to your door? Subscribe today, the current offer of five issues for £10, by heading to our website, www.thecritic.co.uk.